Peace, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and revolution. I'm your host, Josh. I use she, her pronouns. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today, we are going to be having a laid-back discussion about some books that I have been reading, the figures and individuals who are the kind of focal points, but also those individuals' ideas, some of their history, their organizing past, and its connection to today. So we are going to be talking about Walter Rodney, Claudia Jones, and the Caribbean Revolution. Um, So I just finished Walter Rodney Speaks, which was a book that was published by Africa World Press and was put together by a group, I believe, called the International Black Journal. Um, It was written at a point in time in which Walter Rodney, um, who we will speak more on later for folks who don't know much about him or who are hearing his name for the first time right now, He was in the United States to speak at and be a part of a conference on, I believe, um, African struggles, Black power, and other related topics. Now, Claudia Jones, or excuse me, before I speak on that, I just also finished um, Groundings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney, which we will speak more about later. I didn't finish, but I got through about 90% of a book called Left of Karl Marx, The Political Life of Claudia Jones. And I am also in the middle of reading France Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, As well as, I should mention here, for the sake of also bringing up uh, Cuba's relation to and belonging with the Caribbean community, I also had mentioned in previous episodes, I just finished Fidel Castro, My Life by Ignacio Ramonet. And again, I want to mention that this is a laid back episode. This is the first episode I'm recording at home in a while. I am getting high. Um, (laughs) I don't care. You're going to have to deal with the experience like you're here in my living room hanging out with me. I'll try not to eat in the middle of this at least. (laughs) Anyways... Um, so I wanted to do an episode to kind of talk about not only these books for the sake of, um, just like, you know, a book review, 
but also for the sake of discussing in depth the ideas which are presented in the work. Um, I really haven't had much experience learning about the Caribbean myself. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't anything that we were taught in school. And unfortunately, as tends to be the trajectory of most of us who come to consciousness within the West, um, and especially within the U.S. empire, um, we tend to not focus on or hear much about the more uh, African, Caribbean, Asian, Latin American, uh, Marxists, communists, socialists, uh, revolutionaries, who put the ideas of folks like Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin and others that we do tend to hear about and do tend to focus on. Not that these figures are bad or that these figures should not be studied or that, you know, uh, study of this work is unimportant. But it is to say that amidst this study, more often than not, and I am a case example of this, we do not also include in the mix the global south, third world, oppressed nations, whatever you want to call them, who do also uh, study these ideas, and more so than us in the global north and the west, actually put them in practice. So I wanted to talk about this because I think it is important for a couple different reasons, and we're going to kind of speak more on this point also later, but first and foremost, we must understand that the Caribbean and Africa and the third world or global south, whatever terminology we might want to use today, is still oppressed. They are still colonized. It just goes by a new term. It has new, you know, kind of advantages that were developed over time. It has new figures who might resemble or, quote, represent uh, the oppressed nationalities, religious groups, or people in general within that nation. It might have had a constitutional referendum. There might have been one in individual nation states. In cases like Barbados, which recently broke away from uh, the Commonwealth, removed the Union Jack, removed Queen Elizabeth as their head of state, um, equally still has neo-colonial relations to the West and capitalist relations, and I should say capitalist imperialist relations within the nation itself. This is also true in places like Jamaica and even in places like Granada, which had a revolution and was overthrown by the Marines, by Ronald Reagan, 
through a force of arms that annihilated and assassinated political leaders, popular figures, civilians, etc., who in their own revolution, in their own seizing of power from a dictatorship, did not even commit as much violence and as much mass murder as the U.S. Marines did while criminally outnumbering the Grenadan forces, both in numbers and also, of course, in force of arms. So I wanted to say here that in order to understand the ideas that I want to talk about, and in order to really grasp the relevancy today and the importance of figures like Claudia Jones or Fidel Castro or Maurice Bishop or Walter Rodney. Because, again, much of their history ideas and struggles are left within the dustbin of history both by blind ignorance and also by intentional misinformation or ignorance, either by uh, opportunistic forces or the ruling class themselves. So let us drop it back and ask ourselves, what is the historical relationship of the Caribbean to capitalism and to colonialism? First and foremost, we have to remember that after the exodus, the mass exodus of figures from Spain and from Portugal and from France and from Britain to places like Africa and Latin America and what we now call North America, led to an interaction between Europeans and indigenous peoples of the Americas, of Africa, and of Asia. I think many of us know, to some extent, though not the depth in which it truly took place, the violent nature of this encounter where the Europeans attempted to enslave indigenous populations in Bolivia, in Haiti, in Cuba, in the domestic colonies known as the United States, and were unable to do so in many cases. The Spanish, to some extent, succeeded in Bolivia and other places for the sake of mining the Potosi, which is discussed in Edward Eduardo Galeano's book, um, Open Veins of Latin America. But once this process of extreme labor, the importation of things like diseases, and exploitation 
in all areas, religious extremism and white supremacism, uh, aka pan-Europeanism, led to a genocidal massacre of over 95% of the world's indigenous population. I heard it stated in a recent statistic from Gerald Horn, I believe, that one out of 20 indigenous peoples on what we know as North America on Turtle Island in the domestic colonies of the United States, one out of 20 survived. That means that this campaign, this campaign of murder was so systematic that one cannot deny today that this has reverberations in our own society and that it is necessary to seek land back and political power being vested in the hands of those remaining indigenous populations all over the world. The Caribbean was also a focal point of the African slave trade. The Caribbean was a place where a lot of agricultural labor took place, especially of sugarcane and of other monocrops, monocrop cultures, I should say, where essentially the entire land was seized by ruling class powers, either internally or externally, and used to produce one or a very few amount of raw materials or resources or foodstuffs that could be cheaply exported to larger, more advanced markets where they could garner a higher profit. And of course, none of this leads to or has led to the empowerment of the accumulation of wealth in the Caribbean or in Africa or in Asia. Because it was a point on the African slave trade routes, of course, after the mass genocide of the indigenous populations of the Caribbean, the African populations were imported enslaved, shackled, beaten, starved, packed in like sardines to take on the hard labor that over the course of the last 50 to 100 years had rid the world almost of over 90% of its indigenous people. This, of course, led to a mass death of African people, not only through hard labor, but also because African people historically were prone to rebellions, to jumping off of slave ships, to taking over slave ships, to taking over slave ports. They were also prone to things like arson, poisoning, etc., which also happened in many cases of the indigenous population attempted attempting to be enslaved because of, for example, 
their cultural knowledge of botany. Anyways, um, due to this history, the hard hand that rid the European land of the Roma people, of the Jewish population, of quote-unquote Muslims, whether they actually were or were not, as well as the massacre of the indigenous populations led to a situation where the European powers had so much wealth and so much control, not only over their own territories, but of course beginning to take control over global territories, that the religious, social, philosophical, and political institutions then used the same mechanisms, stigmas, and ideologies to criminalize and dehumanize the African populations as they had previously done to the other aforementioned populations and others as well. This then led to a culmination both of extreme force on one end to enslave massive amounts of populations and the extreme force by which those populations revolted against that enslavement. This led all over the world to breakouts of different types of conflicts, some of which were resolved others of which still honestly and truly continue to this day. It also led to a couple instances both in the domestic territories known as the United States and in the Caribbean where enslaved or indentured or uh, unpaid people from Africa who had previously been made out to be unintelligent, docile, lazy, uncoordinated. The same stigmas which were levied against other oppressed populations in Europe and which are levied against other oppressed populations today soon began to organize themselves, soon began to speak across tongues, across cultures, across nationality, through different practices of social relation, some of which were religious in nature or spiritual, others of which were more political and educational, others of which were militaristic and armed, whether those arms be sticks and stones or the guns they took from their slave masters. All of this led to a culmination by which the European powers required a solution to this crisis, which was likely to rid the world of their empires if it continued. And so things like anti-slavery laws, 
the importation of settler populations, the creation of colonial uh, like settlerism in the United States, in Puerto Rico, in Hawaii, in Guam, in the Pacific Islands, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in Asia, in the Americas. The European populations especially decided to import those groups who likely would have led to a kind of class struggle within their own nation states, such as the extremely poor, the criminals, the religious extremists or religious reformists, the women or the um, non-land-owning uh, men, the um, oppressed groups within society. And of course, many of those who were exiled from and banished from Europe ended up having to migrate to other parts of the world. Another tool by which history and the forces that were in power throughout it were able to cultivate divisions within what could have been a global revolutionary upheaval against the enslavement of the third world was the importation of indentured labor. A clear example is given in Walter Rodney's books about how in Guyana, after the, quote, official abolition of slavery, unquote, Indian folks were imported into Guyana to serve as indentured labor aka scabs, to seize the jobs that the white population and the Europeans were unwilling to give to the African populations, which they had previously been enslaving and exploiting. Lastly, we should remember that the main goal in which this history developed, I should say, the main objective that kept this historical trend uh, proceeding was the requisition of an unequal exchange between the resources and labor power coming from the exploited nations and the supposed civilization and benefits that were coming from this relationship to the third world from Europe. So now that we've kind of got a history laid down, and of course many of us can understand some parts of what would come after these periods, many more of us, including myself, myself have a lot to learn, and I am interested to learn more. I plan to buy... Um, Gerald Horn's book. Um, I read The Dawning of the Apocalypse. I want to read the next book. And then when I have the money, I want to read The Counter-Revolution of 1776 and The Counter-Revolution of 1836. But there's other books out there that are um, influential on this topic that I would love to hear about. So please send those suggestions my way. So 
who was Walter Rodney, Claudia Jones? Um, why do we want to speak on these two figures? Why are they important? What is it that makes them stand out? Well, in order to really answer these questions, the best way to do so is to give a brief history of both individuals and to maybe bring up others along the way in the histories and struggles in which they uh, existed within. So, ladies first, and also just simply because I think Claudia Jones more than Walter Rodney even though both are very forgotten figures among the left and the West, uh, for all the time that Claudia Jones spent organizing with the CPUSA for her deportation out of the States and into Great Britain, her participation with the Communist Party of Britain and eventual leaving, her experience with and organizing in the Caribbean community of Britain at the time, all somehow, as uh, Carol Boyce Davies points out in her book, Left of Karl Marx, is essentially like a historical silence. And that needs to be uprooted. So, Claudia Jones, born in February 1915 in Trinidad and Tobago, she eventually would go on to moved to the United States as a very young girl of six or seven, I believe. She speaks in some of her writings later on about some of her earliest experiences, such as, you know, coming across uh, on a ship to the United States, going through the immigration kind of um, importation process. Um, as well as the early forms of racism and exploitation that she and her family suffered under, the experiences of her mother dealing with the awful, awful criminal exploitation that comes in the domestic work field, as well as the experiences that she had, as I said, being a member of different political parties and groups from a very young age, I believe as young as 16 or 18, she wrote her very first piece in a newspaper. Um, she learned a lot from, in the sense that these were figures that were coming up around her same time, and also directly participated with folks like Lorraine Hansberry and Ella Baker, Henry Haywood, or excuse me, Harry Haywood, um, and plenty of others whose names, you know, kind of go forgotten, even unfortunately in this moment in my own head. Her organizing and writing had a particular spirit to it that many of us, uh, I feel, lack today in just a little bit of her writing that is dropped in the book and some of the writings of hers that I've read during and after this book. Um, she's a very well-spoken and very well 
thought out person to the extent that very complex social issues are broken down in a way in many of her even very shortest writings that I don't personally feel anyone who wasn't intentionally doing so could go without understanding. And the other reason why her writing is and organizing is so big is because she and many others of her likeness focused on the plight of those they saw as the most oppressed. Specifically thinking here of black working women, black immigrant women, and especially folks in like domestic labor. Seeing her own mother, her family members and friends go through the experience of, you know, having to not only tend to children of extremely wealthy or even just well-off white women who otherwise would call themselves feminists or, you know, would call themselves abolitionists in a past time, who would go out, walk down city streets in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, and just like a slave market, uh, check up and down these women who had to stand on the block and get bought for a day, uh, they not only had to tend to the, the children of these women, but they also had to oftentimes educate these children. They would be forced to take on jobs that weren't necessarily within their wheelhouse simply because if they were to deny them or not do them, then someone else would take that opportunity and do those jobs and they would lose out on a position for employment. So, you know, cleaning, cooking, uh, gardening, all kinds of things were on the table of these women who ultimately were ignored not only in cases by uh, communists and socialists, liberals and progressives, but even among black nationalists or black power organizations, uh, among civil rights groups or previous to that against um, uh, Jim Crow and against uh, the failure of Reconstruction, women's struggles were not as much as they should be highlighted as particular and the, the sense that as Claudia Jones puts forward, the super exploitation or triple oppression of the black working women who first are oppressed and exploited as workers through the theft of their surplus value, but then as black people and then also as women. This analysis of super exploitation is really crucial, especially today when many of us are caught up on a discussion of class really regarding the question of income rather than the relation to the means of production and the varying levels and degrees by which exploitation and surplus uh, value theft takes place. Because certainly one can look at the job that like I work at a coffee shop where, you know, I make 
thousands of dollars worth of food and drinks that makes this corporation extremely high amounts of money, but yet I'm only making about $150 a day. Of course, we can counterpose that to someone who in Haiti has really only one opportunity for a job, and that's at the Haynes factory, and that's getting paid 33 cents a day, if they even get paid at all. So we can understand here that exploitation versus super exploitation deserves a further investigation among the West than I feel we often give it. So Claudia Jones would eventually be arrested for her organizing work. She uh, wrote a piece for political affairs that was against um, the war in, I'm trying to think, I don't believe it would have been Korea. Well, she organized a lot against World War II, and she also organized against the subsequent proxy wars that the U.S. and European powers waged. But eventually she wrote a piece on the importance of women's involvement in the peace struggle to end war, and this piece combined with kind of all the documentation getting together for the intelligence agencies led to her arresting and deportation. Um, she would go to prison for uh, a sentence of a year and a half, along with two other co-defendants who, again, unfortunately, their names are escaping me at this moment. They would uh, eventually comp some time from Claudia's sentence to deport her to Britain, um, this had a lot to do with kind of two things. One, the mass public outcry against the arresting of these three women and others for supposed uh, anti-American actions. Um, and the second being, in particular, Claudia Jones' own health problems, which were worsened by the forced labor that she endured and the beatings that she endured during her incarceration. She would spend a sizable majority of her time uh, in prison and also throughout her later years in life in and out of hospitals for her heart. Unfortunately, she would die a very young age after doing a lot of her really strong organizing within the Caribbean communities of Britain, organizing carnivals, beauty contests, uh, but also using these cultural uh, organizational uh, events to build mass consciousness against the Commonwealth, to build mass consciousness against neo-colonialism, and to build mass consciousness against the continued forms of exploitation that were visible and to some extent invisible to the naked eye uh, within both Britain and the Caribbean at large and in Africa. She would die at 49 years old in 1964. Uh, in Yalta, in um, the Caucasus, I want to say um, Crimea. She had gone there to visit uh, and to also seek treatment 
at some of the facilities that were very prevalent at the time in the Soviet Union that folks like Harry Haywood and others would go and visit, uh, write songs about, write poems about. Um, and it's actually, side note, the homes and the just like uh, vacations that were encouraged by the political parties and mass movements in the Soviet nations that allowed for entire families to step away for months on end uh, to rest, to recuperate, to learn, to seek medical treatment, to exercise. These facilities were beautiful. Some of them are still standing today being used for other things, um, one of which actually was used for a kind of go-away school for Ukrainian children in uh, Russia, like Ukrainian children who are sent to this school, which is in Russia by their parents and by their guardians for, I think it's a period of three weeks. And it was actually converted into a music hall uh, with a theater and an auditorium, classrooms, and usable equipment that these students are then encouraged to uh, come and, and garner their talents with um, as a, a, a project of solidarity between the peoples of Russia and Ukraine. So transitioning now to Walter Rodney, Walter Rodney was born in 1942 in Guyana. He was a well-educated uh, scholar from a very young age. It was clear that he had an aptitude for study and also for things like athletics. So after his primary schooling, he was invited on a scholarship to attend the University of West Indies, and then he would go on to get his master's degree and eventually his PhD by 24 which is the age that I am. And that <laughs> low-key has been bumming me out ever since I read it. <laughs> but once he had gotten his PhD, and also while he was getting his education... He spent a lot of time in public parks like Hyde Park. And he also spent a lot of time off the university campuses connecting with folks like in Jamaica, the Rastafarians, and just uh, the particularly oppressed and impoverished populations of whichever nation he happened to be either studying in or visiting. He spent a sizable majority of his time after graduating, involving himself in organizing efforts, in conferences, in speaking arrangements, in internationalist work. And he would eventually go on to teach in Tanzania after it was uh, made independent and was led by Julius Nereri. 
which was at the time developing a particular form of socialism uh, called Ujamaa that uh, was meant to be geared towards the particular conditions not only of Africans in general, but of the experiences and relations that existed within Tanzania at the time. It succeeded and failed to different extents. Rodney and many teachers were involved in outreach in the rural areas, which Rodney speaks about in his book, um, or I should say in the book, Walter Rodney Speaks by the African World Press, as being a complex, complicated situation where many non-Tanzanians who happened to belong to the university were called upon by the government to do this work in the rural areas, even against some of the calls by folks like Walter Rodney to say that they were not the appropriate individuals to take on this labor, given their relation to the nation and also their role within the universities as being also a site for struggle that they could actually more properly uh, take on given their experience, research, study, and fields of uh, work. Anyways, after a period of time teaching at the University of Dar al Salaam, he would come to the United States, as I said, in 1974 to take part in a series of conferences uh, and also visit different parts of the United States to do his own uh, speaking, research, relationship building, and also uh, interviews, one of which uh, became this book. So Rodney, again, he spent a lot of time in the Caribbean organizing with folks who otherwise were being ignored even by the left forces, say, within Jamaica or within Guyana. Rodney also had a particularly keen awareness of things like Black identity, of Africanness, of Europe's uh, historical enslavement of the Third World and the ways in which it used things like Indian indentured servanthood and the importation of settlers to offset and disturb the popular forces from being able to overthrow in a mass upheaval the systems at large. Even folks like Manly in Jamaica and the PPP in Guyana, which claimed to be Marxists or socialists or social democrats, had a blind side when it came to international struggle in the sense that in Guyana, many of the African population would join a particular political party and many of the Indian population would join an opposing party. And through their own struggles, rather than uniting against the settler population and the minority capitalist interests, would instead oftentimes fall into pitfalls and traps. And also actually an example of Kwame Ture speaking in Guyana on black power and the confusion and misleading that came from his discussion of Africans needing to unite 
and struggle for Africans above and beyond the struggles of others. All of this culminated in a division between what in Guyana would have been and is described as the black population. Whereas around the world, this term black, of course, means many different things. In the case of Guyana, it does encompass, encompass both the Indian and uh, African populations. And so it would make more logical sense, more revolutionary sense for a form of union and struggle to be waged together rather than against one another. So all of this, all of his organizing, his ideas, as well as his active involvement, again, with some of the most oppressed populations outside of the university halls, rather than just writing about it in books or speaking about it in lecture circuits, he actually went down and did what he called grounding sessions with people, where, as he felt, uh, as an intellectual, as a particular kind of an intellectual known as a guerrilla intellectual, it was his duty and objective as not only an oppressed person of Guyanese you know, origin from the Caribbean, uh, but also as a, a Marxist scholar, as a communist, as a Pan-Africanist, as a revolutionary, believed that this education and this knowledge was most importantly to be given and, and built up by the people who are oppressed by these systems themselves, rather than remaining in the halls of the old guard of the left, of the old communist parties or socialist parties or the universities. So eventually Rodney uh, actually would lose the professorship which he had taken up upon leaving uh, Tanzania in the period of time which he spent in the United States. The administration of Guyana, I believe, effectively forced the University of West Indies to revoke the offer for the position of uh, professorship there. And this led to Rodney's effective banning from Guyana. Uh, subsequently, I believe he was also banned from Jamaica. Rodney would go on to organize and struggle with the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I'm reading my little notes here, the Working People's Alliance. And eventually he would be arrested in 1979, accused of arson after two government buildings were burned down. After his arrest and eventual release, he was continuously harassed, followed, called, uh, and eventually was assassinated by a bomb that killed him only blocks away from his childhood neighborhood of birth. Rodney uh, wrote a lot of incredible works, again, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, groundings with my brothers, as well as many studies of the Guyanese situation during their colonial period, and also in his speeches and writings and uh, discussions, spoke much about the Caribbean and African situation, both within the uh, Caribbean and African land masses, and also in uh, North America. So why are these figures important today? Why did I choose to talk about them? 
why am I someone from central New York who's never been to any of these countries who uh, objectively speaking could really uh, go without learning about this uh, and, and not feel as if I've lost out on anything because my experience does not reflect or mirror their own. Uh, why do I want to talk about this? Why am I recording an episode on this? First and foremost, I want to say that Haiti, the birthplace of the Black Revolution, where the first Black Republic was able to be established through an overthrow of the dictatorship by the French and other forces from Europe in Haiti, uh, through a force of arms, through organization, through mass uprisings, and through a building of a political establishment. This, of course, was violently reacted against and oppressed by France and all of Europe, including the United States today, which sells arms through Florida to gang leaders and militant groups who go on to oppress and victimize the people of Haiti. This has been fairly documented by the Haitian people themselves. The reason why I say Haiti is because Caribbean struggles are inherently connected not only to Africa and there in the third world, but also to the United States because anywhere between 30 and 90 million formerly unpaid enslaved uh, Africans now have descendants who live in the United States, across the entire land, in Canada, in Europe, who also suffer the brunt of the reverberations of colonialism, of racism, of xenophobia, and oppression today. I also want to mention that neocolonialism reigns true in the Caribbean and throughout the third world, and that the petite bourgeoisie, the compradors, the nationals from these different Caribbean, African, Latin American, or Asian nations who sell out their population for a bit of the crumbs from the capitalist production that will then be imported into the land to steal the raw materials, labor power, markets, and ability to produce for themselves of the uh, particular nation in question. This is the group that leads in mass in these countries which now are supposedly independent, which now supposedly have dealt with the colonial question, but this is a lie. This is a sham government. And this is a sham independence that needs to be fought by the revolutionary masses as it is in Kenya, as it is in Swaziland, as it is in Burkina Faso, as it is in Mali, as it is in Sudan, as it is in Angola, as it is in Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau, as it is in Ghana and Guinea and in South Africa and in all of the nations across the third world who, uh, against all odds, have extreme numbers of popular forces who do not stop, no matter how much they have to find ways to survive in the system as it exists today. They continue to fight for their true nation and their true independence and their true liberation.
this oppression that happened in the Caribbean, that happened on the African continent, of course, is similar to and relates to the oppression that happened and exists in the United States. And lastly, I want to say that the black slash African slash oppressed people in general who come from the third world, who are forced to migrate to Europe or who were captured and brought to North America or to the Caribbean or to Mexico or to Canada. Um, These folks have to be able to lead their own struggle. They have to be able to liberate themselves. But in order to do so, those of us who do not belong to those communities must also aid and struggle alongside with these forces to ensure their full liberation, Uh, not to opportunistically gain a few members in our political party, but to actually lead towards the Black Revolution and African liberation around the world. So a couple warnings and a couple positive signs to finish out on. Washington Bullets by V.J. Prashad is a good document for this, but also just studying the history of nations like the Congo or Granada, Ghana, Burkina Faso, Mexico or Puerto Rico, Hawaii or Chile, Uruguay or Bolivia, Panama, Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, one can see that when the popular masses rise up against the ruling class, there is an extreme reaction which comes. And in the cases with which the people are able to actually seize power, which is the goal, the oppressed people cannot succeed unless they actually have political power, meaning the direct participation in the planning, production, and reproduction of society um, and the government administration therein. Uh, Until this happens, right, and even when this happens, this is in fact the period when reaction is at its strongest, because now reaction has been repelled, it's been sent back into its camp, it's been reorganizing and reconsidering, reconsolidating and restructuring, and it's really the period by which the revolution has consolidated power and goes on to fight the continuing forms of counter-reaction, that the true nature, competence, discipline, and success of the revolution really is made and measured. Because, of course, we know in many cases where this reaction has come, post-consolidation, either of national liberation struggles, independence, or socialist revolution, the revolutionary forces have been massacred, they have been incarcerated, they have been exiled, they have been tortured, they have been infiltrated, they have been uh, opportunistically turned upon. We must think of Thomas Sankara's best friend of 30 years assassinating him and overthrowing the socialist and national liberation construction in that nation. We must also think of the capture of Hugo Chavez, the 600-plus assassination attempts against Fidel Castro and members of the Cuban revolutionary movements, and also the continued sanctions, siege, torture, and encirclement of nations who decide to stand up against the Western capitalist powers today. But 
what we must remember is that people are standing up. And I want to hold up again this case of Burkina Faso, because for folks who don't know, Burkina Faso was previously named Upper Volta and was changed during Thomas Sankara's administration to Burkina Faso, which means the land of upright people. So in that nature and in that spirit, we must remember that nations around the world and people around the world will not allow and continue to not allow for this colonial, neo-colonial, and imperialist system to continue. If we want to see an end to this system in our lifetime, and we need not talk about timelines, but if we truly want to imagine a world that we live in that is different, we have to build it today. We have to struggle for it as if it could come tomorrow, because if it does, we have to be prepared to seize the moment, to be able to plan, to be able to produce, to be able to defend ourselves, to be able to consolidate, and to be able to lead towards the political power being placed in the hands of the truly oppressed masses of the world for the first time in history uh, on a global scale. And if this were to happen, we know that an entirely new world could come true, and it will come true, because nations like Nicaragua, Vietnam, Laos, China, uh, Bolivia, Cuba, Venezuela, um, and many others to varying degrees, both historically and today, have built or are building struggles liberation projects, institutions, political parties, civil societies, organizations, groups, collectives, cooperatives, mutual aid groups, all kinds of community groups, and uh, socialist revolutions, which, against all odds, will continue to the day that imperialism finally meets its deathbed, which it will. And remember that although things seem dark, things continue to worsen. Um, Shout out to the Florida 14 who were just arrested for protesting and doing a sit-in after Ron DeSantis announced his presidential campaign. Um, And also shout out to the African People's Socialist Party, to Chairman O'Malley Yeshitali, to Jenny Hess or excuse me, to Penny Hess and to uh, Jesse Novelle, as well as the other comrades and members, community organizers and solidarity members who are struggling to fight against the bullshit indictment of the leadership of the APSP, the African People's Socialist Party, and of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. And lastly, I want to say, stop Cop City. All power to the Atlanta folks struggling against this fucking fascist development and all power to the people who are struggling for liberation all over the world. Peace, love, and socialism, as always, folks. Here's uh, here's to the Caribbean, African, Asian, Latin American, indigenous, and oppressed peoples' revolutions succeeding and surviving consolidating and successfully building a new society all power to the people